Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 43 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. My name's Rod Murray, and on this episode, there's a range of stuff that matters, covering everything from Rory's magnificent open victory at Hoylake a fortnight ago to a new book by golf course designer Scott McPherson, which tracks the history of the world's 66 Royal Golf Club. Scott's a fascinating character whose other book was a comprehensive analysis of all the documented changes made to the old course over time, and even included an argument, if I recall, for modifying some of the present-day bunkering. I can hear the gasps out there in podcast land already. We'll come back to that, and Scott, in just a moment. But before we do, let me introduce my co-hosts, as always, from the US, only recently returned from the UK and Royal Liverpool, author, commentator, course designer, blogger, and all-round influential golf type, Jeff Shackelford. Shack, looking forward to chatting with Scott today. Yes, very much so. I, I, uh, I'm, I'm apparently one of the few people on the planet who has his new book. I bought it at the Open, and I'm, uh, I'm very excited about it. At a weight it's an of, impressive piece of work. I was going to say, at a weight of 2.4 kilos, as you just told it is. <laughs> it is a weighty, weighty tome. Tome, yes, that's exactly right. So looking forward to hearing a bit about that. And from here in the Antipodes, touring pro, course designer, magazine columnist, caddy, commentator on the game, and also, I would say, an all-round influential golf type, Mike Clayton. Clayton, it's good to have you aboard. I know that you know Scott pretty well. Looking forward to having a chat to him today. Thank you, Rob. And to the man of the moment himself, Scott McPherson from Scott McPherson Golf Design. Scott's a Kiwi by birth, but a global golf nut by nature. His recently released second book is one for the proudly self-confessed golf nerds among us. It's called Golf's Royal Clubs, and it's about the 66 golf clubs around the, the globe, which bear the Royal Seal. Scott, really looking forward to chatting a bit about the book today, but also getting your thoughts on a bunch of other stuff, including a little tournament that was held at one of the Royal Clubs just a couple of weeks ago in Liverpool. Welcome to State of the Game. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, and uh, good to have you aboard. Is that unfair of me, Scott? Is this, this really is a book for golf nerds, isn't it? I mean, I've got my hand up. I'm a golf nerd. That doesn't bother me. Is that is that a fair cop? Uh, probably is. I, I think, you know, I look at the book now as a reference book. Um, there was a lot of questions about, simple questions really, in many ways, about how many royal clubs there are, where are they, how they got their royal title. And um, like uh, Mike, I'm sure, um, had played quite a number of the royal clubs and so developed a fascination. And I've, I've really never fancied myself as an author and both this book and the previous one on St. Andrews really came about because of a curiosity rather than a desire to, to write anything. And I, and I certainly enjoyed the research phase. Um, but my view of the book now is it's a book which you can dip in, dip into and dip out of depending on how much time you have and how, how uh, broad your interest is in the subject. Um, and so it's, uh, you know, it's, it's knocking 500 pages. And as you said, it's quite a, quite a big book. Um, but it seems to have been well received and I'm delighted that we've been able to elevate the level of knowledge about what is a, a very select and uh, influential group of clubs. Yeah. Well, exactly. And of course, it's, it's a bit of a running joke in Australia, and I guess it's probably the same in New Zealand. When you find the local course, which really isn't a particularly good course, often the local golfers will sort of deem it with the name Royal, won't they? Royal Mungary Park. In the United Oak States Club. too. And in the States as well. It's a, <laughs> It really is, a, it, it, that's a bit of a parody, but it does sort of speak to what the royal title actually means in golf, doesn't it, Scott? What did you find with that, with the sorts of clubs and the sorts of courses that have the royal attached? Yeah, I was really curious. And, uh, you know, the 66 clubs, as you said, and I visited 57 during the research phase. And uh, often I'd spend uh, between one and three days with each of the clubs. And part of that was asking a question uh, about how the club 
identified with its royal title, and there was often a, a range of answers to that. Some, it was central to their identity, and for other golf clubs, they uh, had they had got the title uh, a number of years ago, often a hundred or more, uh, and the club had changed. Uh, and I, you know, and I'm not don't think I'm speaking out of school where one of the clubs may be Royal Windsor Golf Club in southern southern England, where in the early days their the results of their club competitions were in the society pages, and now it's almost uh, a blue collar club. So they they have changed, and I think that's true of many of the clubs. There's been quite an evolution. Uh, in the, the in the way the club has developed, and, and the book, in a way, is interesting because as much as we know of the great royal clubs like Royal Liverpool or right, like the Royal Ancient Golf Club or like Royal Melbourne, um, there is a number of lesser-known clubs, but clubs that have their own story to tell, and and in some cases, it's a very interesting story. Yeah. What's the most recent? Royal Club, can you recall, Scott? Um, one immediately assumes that all of these clubs were deemed royal a hundred years ago, but that's probably not the case. What, what are some of the more recent that you could find? Of the yeah, well, absolutely. There's been, I think there's been six in this century uh, wow. since 2000, and the most recent was was um, just over a year ago, in April 2013, and in Germany, of all places, and a lot of people get in the eyebrows <laughs> tend to head towards the hairline when they find out the most recent ones in Germany, because um, you, we, we live in a time where our most recent memories are of the world wars and yet prior to that there was a very strong connection between the British royal family and the German royal family and so in this case when their application went in in um, 2012 um, it was really based on the historic connection between uh, it was the Prince of Wales who became King Edward VII um, and they, they set up a golf course in 1889 um, and in 1899, 10 years later, they formed the golf club. So what's now known as the Royal Hamburg Golf Club um, applied to, uh, the, ultimately it went up to the Queen, but it, it went through a new department in London, which is part of the Cabinet Office, it w- then went up to uh, the Deputy Prime Minister through the Privy Council and ultimately up to the Queen who granted the Royal title. So it's quite a surprise to many people. So it's not an online application form then? <laughs> no, yeah. this is. I mean, they took six months to get through, uh, and there have been historically different ways to get through. It's only in recent times, in fact, since the last general election in the UK in 2010, that the Cabinet Office has set up a department to deal with applications for the royal title. Prior to that, and certainly for the hundred years before that, it was through the Home Office. Uh, and prior to that, it was more of a case in many ways of who you knew. Yeah, well, one would have assumed that's that's actually all quite fascinating, isn't it, Scott? I would never have thought of any of that when I thought about Royal Golf Clubs, that there's actually this process and all that sort of stuff. Are people, are clubs still wanting to apply? Do you, have you, is there any sort of uh, anecdotal evidence about the demand for this? And do the Royals, you said this one went to the Queen, do the Royals still get involved in this stuff, the Royal family themselves? Uh, yeah, very much so. And, and that's sort of one of the matters that we've tried to clarify is that that um, the privilege of having the royal title is sanctioned by uh, the monarch. So the, the proper authority uh, is, is the whether it's the king or the queen, depending on obviously who's on the throne at the time. Um, though you could have a patron, and the patron could be a prince, or, or in many cases it could be, say, a governor general if it was 
uh, one of the colonies. Um, but no, for um, it's it's really since the start. The very first royal title was 1833, and it was the Perth Golfing Society in Scotland, and that was done uh, really in an afternoon. Uh, the uh, one a member of the club was having a meeting with the king, and he'd gone down to talk about some business. Uh, and one of the, I think, one of the agenda items that this, this chap had, uh, called Lord Kinnaird, was to talk to the, the king about perhaps the uh, opportunity to rename the golf club with the royal uh, prefix, and uh, and the king, the king sanctioned that, and that was our first royal golf club. Uh, and very soon after the RNA, the royal, the, what we now know as the Royal Ancient Golf Club made a similar application and they were granted it. So from the very start, it's really been a privilege of of the monarch, or sovereign. Um, though we do have um, this, uh, and we've discovered it in our research, the, the, the few clubs which have gained it through a, another member of the royal family. And it was usually done... Uh, um, it was done with sincerity, though um, probably now it's, it's recognised that that wasn't the correct authority, though nobody's challenging it because these are all very old applications. How delightfully British that a bloke can just pop down to see the king about business and while he's there, just offhandedly mentioned, would you mind whacking the royal moniker on the golf club while I'm here? It's... <laughs> That's wonderfully old school, isn't it, compared to the process? It is great. It is great. And, and when you understand the history, particularly the royal history between golf and and the game, it's uh, it's a perfect parallel because there, there should be a connection. There's been a number of royal golfers, and we identified them in the golf book, in, in the book itself, from King James the Fourth. And we're talking about uh, you know, 1502, I think, is the period, is the time, the year that the king really took up the game. Mm. Uh, so there's been a very long royal connection, and it was, but it was quite a step for somebody to then say, well, how about we call our golf club, you know, royal, uh, in some and taking taking on the royal title. And I should mention there's one one bit of interest in the royal title. We have one club, just one of the 66, that doesn't use it as a suffix, and it's Duffhouse Royal, a golf club in Scotland. And, and in fact, uh, Clates will. Will, will probably be aware of it because he's a great historian of the game as well. That they have a golf course which was designed by Alistair McKenzie, um, so they're, they're a neat part of our story too. I'll, I'll get Clay's thoughts on that in just a moment. Do we know why they don't use the Royal Scott? Are they perhaps even just one step above Royal, where they don't even need to use it? <laughs> no, their story is not that interesting. But they were they they took on the Royal title through a member of the royal family called Princess Louise, who was often known as the Princess Royal. So because she was not the known as the royal princess, but rather the Princess Royal, uh, when the title was conferred, they felt appropriate that rather than being Royal Duff House, they themselves used it as a suffix rather than a pre- prefix. And, and, and there's our little story. Oh, dear. The word quaint springs to mind, doesn't it? It's all very... Uh... All very quaint. What's the most interesting sort of royal course, uh, Scott, in, from your perspective? The 66 of them, you've been to 57 of them, you've researched all of them. Uh, which one's got the most interesting story to tell, the most interesting story, or the one that perhaps is best known by the golfing public? Which one sort of stands out to you of all the 66? It's really difficult. It's particularly difficult for me because you do build up some relationships along the way. But the stories like Duff House, as an example, are ones where I've gained, a, you know, had a real surprise. Where it's a lesser-known club, uh, and it's only by visiting it and getting to know the the club themselves and the officials within the club that you walk away and you're quite surprised and enlightened, really, by 
their own story and their journey to gaining the royal title. As an example, another example of a different royal club where the story was uh, very interesting is a much more well-known club is Royal Lytham St Anne's, who uh, who had actually had multiple applications uh, for the royal title. And again, this was new to me. I I wasn't aware that you could have royal uh, multiple applications, but in, in using the National Archives and Freedom of Information Act, we uncovered some files uh, in London. Which which indicated that uh, well not not only that a number a number of clubs had applied and been unsuccessful but a number of clubs had applied uh, a number of times and in the case of Royal Lytham St Anne's uh, they only gained the application or sorry they only gained the royal title on their fifth application which was in 1926 wow. their fourth application preceded it by only three years was 1923. So for me, the question was, well, what happened between 1923 and 1926 for the Home Office to uh, forward their application up to the King with a, pom- a positive nomination? And the, at that time, in 1919, four years previous to the 1923 application, there'd been a set of rules which had really been drawn up, and one of the rules uh, was connected to the quality of the golf course. And at that point in time... They really wanted the golf course to be of championship standard. Now, this hadn't previously been very important. In fact, four of the Royal Clubs don't have a golf course officially, even today. The Royal Ancient Golf Club don't have a golf course, and there's three others. But around 1919, for them, it was very important that the club be of championship standard. And in 1923, uh, Royal Lytham St Anne's golf course was not of championship standard, and they hired a very famous and certainly one of my favourite architects, Harry Colt, to come in and uh, redesign their layout with the aim of hosting the Open Championship. And that was achieved. That was achieved in 1926 in a very famous Open, I'm sure you're aware, which was won by Bobby Jones. Mm. So here they are. They've been awarded the Open by uh, the RNA, um, and in the same year they're awarded the royal the royal title. So it was an interesting culmination of watching the rules at work, watching a club work through the process, and then being gifted it on, uh, as I said, on their fifth attempt. Yeah, well, it's a, what an extraordinary effort it takes. Is there a lot of that? I know, obviously, Royal Liverpool and known as Hoylake generally, uh, Royal Lytham known to many as sort of Lithamanson. Is there a lot of that, um, Scott, where the course has been known by a different name before the royal title and that one, the two become interchangeable? Those two come to mind straight off. Are there others in that sort of circumstance? Like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's quite a, well, there's certainly half a dozen or so where um, the, the, the title of the area, Hoylake's obviously known as an area, and we in the book try to focus this more on the clubs than on the courses or on the areas because, as I said, there's four clubs that, that don't have a course. What are the other three, um, by the way? The, another one would be, say, something like, uh, um, say, Westwood Ho is one that one that springs to mind, the Royal North Devon Golf Club. So it's known okay. as Westwood Ho within many circles or, say, Brancaster for, uh, um, for another of the clubs. So yeah, there there are some which are known for other reasons and uh, than the royal title. Yeah, oh, it's, it, it's actually quite fascinating stuff. Clates, you would have played, as Scott mentioned, there are plenty of royal courses uh, on courses you know, attached to royal clubs over time. They, they, they tend to be some of the some of the better golf courses and lands and the better examples of architecture going around. Well, oddly in Perth, no one would think that Royal Perth was the best course in Perth. 
late payouts by far the best course. It always seems strange that why that didn't go the other way around. Um, it's a mouthful, did, isn't it? Royal Lake Karen, yep. It is, yeah. Well, <laughs> probably a name, but, um, one interesting question that I've never known the answer to, Scott, what happened to Hong, uh, Royal Hong Kong? Did that just become Hong Kong Golf Club in, the, in 1997? Yeah, that's that's the story that we've we've come to believe that in, in the handover in 1997, they felt that it was a difficult title for them to keep, and so they handed it back. Um, though obviously the Royal Hong Kong Yacht, Yacht Club has carried on, um, so they're not in our book. They're they're a club that we only focus on those 66 golf clubs that currently use the use the title. And in fact, there's been 74 golf clubs that have been granted the title historically. But there's eight that either no longer exist. They may have been. Uh, uh, we've got a couple of Royal Ladies Golf Clubs, which no longer. None of them exist. I think there was three. They all merged with the men's club. Uh, Royal Kong, Hong Kong gave it back, and there's been a couple of other that, that have just failed financially and ceased uh, a number of decades ago. Wow. You mentioned three others apart from Royal and Ancient Golf Club of Senators that don't actually have a golf course attached. What are they out of interest on? Well, they're the first three, believe it or not. So we've got the Royal Perth Golfing Society. Uh, we've got the RNA. Then the third one of that trio is Royal Montrose uh, Golf Club, which play on the public links. And the fourth is down in London. It's Royal Epping Forest Golf Club. Wow, it's uh, fascinating stuff. And how many countries do the Royal? Obviously, we've got some here in Australia. I don't. I would imagine we'd be talking Commonwealth countries. Got Canada, England, Scotland, Ireland. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Australia has the most out, most of any country once you get outside the UK. Um, there's about 38 of the Royal Clubs are in the UK. We've got three in Europe. So there's one in Germany. There's the Royal Malta Golf Club and the Royal Mariansky Lazny, which I'm sure Clates has played, played as well. They've hosted a European tour event there in the Czech Republic. Um, there's six in Canada. Um, there's one in India, one in Sri Lanka, uh, four in South Africa, uh, one in Zimbabwe, one in Kenya. Uh, two in New Zealand, and um, and that should be 66. Wow, it's uh, fascinating stuff. Shaq, you're the only one of us who's had the opportunity to read the book, apart from Scott, obviously, who wrote it, and I imagine went over it after he finished it. What stands out to you from uh, the book about the Royal Clubs? I would never have thought of this as a topic of golf. Do you know <laughs> how do Royal Clubs come to be Royal Clubs? But it's actually yeah. quite interesting, isn't it? Well, uh, a few things stand out. Number uh, one is how many good royal golf courses there there are i don't know why i kind of thought maybe that wasn't the case even though we know the ones from the open rota um i just uh scott's done a beautiful job i mean he undersells the 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 golf course component he has a beautiful map of each course uh and and with his eye for design covers key details Uh, another fun thing is you get to go inside the clubhouses which usually in club histories is really dreadful they'll They'll, uh, they have to show you pictures of the clubhouses. But in the case of these, some of these clubhouses have never been, <laughs> the interior have never been seen by uh, us uh, non-royals. And uh, so it's pretty fun to see inside the uh, Royal and Ancient Golf Club of St. Andrews and places like that. Um, and uh, and then, of course, just the all the coverage he does of the royal family in golf. It's been a an interesting relationship they've had with the game. And... Uh, uh, and there's some great graphics kind of showing uh, everybody's ties and such. So it's it's a really uh, – and it's just amazing how many Royal C- 
clubs there are around the world in just different spots. Yeah. Just, you sound terrible there, Shaq. Can you maybe try and sort out a microphone or something? I don't know whether it's not plugged in properly or you're running on a different system today, but it's... Uh, really? Okay. Yeah. As it normally is. While you do that, huh. Scott, how did okay. you find be- access? We think of Royal Clubs predominantly as being quite stuffy and difficult to get access to. Were most of the clubs open to your overtures to do some research? The approach that I took initially, um, and it carried on through the book, was that this book is a celebration, uh, and we were treating every golf club equally. So it didn't matter if they were a new Royal Club or an old Royal Club, if they uh, were a lesser-known club or if they were on the open rotor, um, they were all going to be treated equally. So as Jeff very kindly highlighted, we did spend quite a lot of time working through the template and book design. So um, there is a map of all the courses that are connected with the club. So in the case of, say, Royal uh, Montreal, which has uh, obviously been on the TV uh, last week uh, with the PGA Tour, they have 45 holes. So we do maps of all 45 holes, (laughs) um, which is a time-consuming process. In a case like Royal Aberdeen, another great Royal Club, they actually have 36 holes, and most people would be aware of the Bell uh, Gowney links, but no little or nothing of the Silverburn links, which is a, a, the, the smaller golf course. So we were very, I think we were um, maybe painstaking in our attempt to try and portray the clubs equally, though they all have very different stories. And as Jeff said, in the photographs that we had, it was important to me that if you were curious of, say, Royal Calcutta Golf Club, you could pick up the book, uh, you'd have the six pages on the club, there would be the opening page which would have the information on when the club got its royal title, how old the club was, if they have any royal patrons who gave them the royal title, dot, dot, dot. On the facing page is the map of the courses uh, or course, uh, and then you'd turn to pages three and four, there'd be photos of the golf courses, and, and traditionally, or in our book, pages five and six, were showing uh, photos of the club. Um, and part of the reason behind that was not only because we felt reasonably strongly that we needed to celebrate all, all the golf clubs, is that many of the golf clubs have relationships between themselves. They're either playing old trophies or, say, in the case of many Australian clubs, and, in fact, the Australian golf clubs are more organised uh, nationally in their regional within Australia than any of the other clubs in the world they have these they play, they meet regularly annually they have all these relationships they have strong reciprocities and so we felt that it was important that they should be able to be reflected equally um, and if you were a member of one and you were maybe say uh, we're talking about Royal Perth or Clates mentioned the Royal Perth they are quite an isolated golf club, but they they have a very active membership who might go to um, sort of New Zealand's quite close. There's a Royal Club in Papua New Guinea. Maybe they head to Europe. Maybe they head to the UK, uh, and they have I think over 30 uh, clubs with their with, with, they share reciprocity with. And if you were a member of Royal Perth and you wanted to go and visit one of these clubs, the idea of the book is that you could just open it up and get a feel for a club that you may have never visited before. Mm. It sounds uh, it sounds absolutely fascinating, Clates. Uh, that that whole royal idea and the, all the re- reciprocation has that been your experience? I know you've got you're not a member at Royal Melbourne, but you've got some fairly close ties there. It's Australia's uh, probably best best known and best golf course. Is there knowing the membership and the club itself that royal part of it? Is it sort of important to them in your experience? 
Uh, yeah, I think it is. In fact, there was an interesting story when Australia voted to become a Republican, whenever it was, apparently there was a bloke who went and, however you go about the things, took out the name of the Melbourne Golf Club, the Sydney Golf Club, etc., etc. so that if Australia did vote to become a Republic, which it didn't, he, he would own the name, the Melbourne Golf Club, which kind of begs the question of what would Royal Melbourne become <laughs> when Australia becomes a Republic? Would it do what Royal Hong Kong did and become the Melbourne Golf Club? Or So it was an interesting question that might, that might have come up. Um, Scott, the one apocryphal story you always hear is the story of the Berkshire Golf Club. Is that true or not, the story that they had their royal prefix taken from them? For not allowing the, the king and the golf club in the clubhouse. It's a funny place, and you'd love it. Um, we were, uh, you know, went around a number of the clubs, and often that would come up, and um, people would say, "By the way, is it true about the Berkshire Golf Club?" And before I'd had a chance to answer, I'd hear a story, and it was a variation on the theme, and I probably heard thirty or forty different variations on on the story about why they didn't gain the royal title. Um, though sadly none were true, and we found out uh, in, in some of our research through the National Archives that, um, that the Berkshire had applied for the royal title um, and had been uh, declined um, from having the royal title for sadly no other more interesting reason than at the time the Home Office felt that there were other clubs in the region very close by them, say Sunningdale that had they applied or Swindley Forest or you know, the great clubs nearby that they would be they would have to give them the royal title as well. So it was just felt that at the time and I can't remember what year this was, my guess is if you push me it was in the thirties, but I'd need to go back to my notes, um, that they were just not deemed to satisfy the rules that were in place. So so what was the rumour, Scott, that they had their royal title taken away because for some reason they didn't let the king into the clubhouse. Is that yeah, the the prince at the time was a fairly keen golfer, and that he was playing with a professional. And um, the prof- as I said, this this isn't a true story. So both the the, uh, the member of the royal family and the person they were playing with uh, change in the stories, and, and also then what happened. But a common theme of the story was that the prince was playing with uh, Henry Cotton, who was the one who came up quite often, um, and that he wasn't allowed back into the clubhouse. Um, at the conclusion of the games, and was told that the prince could come in, but perhaps the the, the professional golfer would would uh, like to head down to a local public bar and right, um, <laughs> come in. And as a result of that, the, the club had apparently applied for this title. And that when the prince got back to uh, Windsor Castle or Buckingham Palace or wherever he was going, again this is all fiction. Um, that he he declined the club's application. So a, yeah, the stories are all fun, and sometimes you know the fun stories are more interesting than than the, than the real story. Well, it is well, that's a fabulous one, and you've just ruined it for everybody who didn't know it and would have enjoyed it, and all those who've obviously been enjoying it for years. Like Clays, have there been any sort of controversial uh, things happen with royal clubs? It's probably not the sort of thing you delve into. Did you come across anything where someone had their royal uh, title taken away or anything along those lines? Um, as, as I said, you know, we, we really focus on the clubs that got the royal title. Um, there are some which um, have no longer got the royal title, but um, I'm equally aware of a number of golf clubs that have had been rejected from the royal title, and maybe up until the 1930s, the list was 50 or so, and I suspect there's been a, a number a number since that time. 
um, but it's um, for, for different reasons. And I, and I think the story broadly reflects a changing in the rules. There's been a great change culturally and the attitudes towards golf. Uh, we find in the story that when you plot uh, the golf clubs and when they received the royal title, there's about a 60-year period between the 1880s and the 1930s when the vast majority of the golf clubs were awarded the royal title, and that correlates with uh, an upsurge in the number of uh, members of the royal family who were playing the game, uh, and um, and then obviously world wars and things get in the way. Yeah. Um, so you know our focus is on is, is a as is a, to celebrate this quite unique group. Yeah, you've answered one of my questions, which was was there a particular time when this seemed to be kind of the fad or the trend? And obviously that that lengthy period you mentioned there was a part of it because you mentioned the ties between the royal family and golf, and it was only, what, 10 years ago? I think it was Prince Andrew was the captain of the Royal and Ancient. I recall him driving yep. in. Be correct, yeah, 2004, um, or 2003-04 was the period that he was uh, he was the captain of the Royal Club, still plays very actively, uh, is still a patron of, uh, off the top of my head, I think it's about 15 uh, golf clubs, so still connected. He plays uh, the Royal Windsor Golf Club, which is a really... Neat Royal Club uh, and a yeah, little a known story. golf club, um, and we, we I was delighted that we featured in our in our book. It's a nine-hole course, and um, as I said, there's four golf clubs that don't have a course, but we have two Royal Golf Clubs that only have a nine-hole course. Uh, one is the Royal Household Golf Club at Windsor Castle, uh, and the other one um, is uh, uh, quite a well-known golf club in London with probably. Uh, the longest name and the shortest course, which is the Royal Wellington and Newmarket Golf Club. And it's only got nine holes as well. That's uh, interesting stuff. Um, fantastic. It's got wonderful book, wonderful idea for a book, and, and far more interesting than I thought it might have been. Let's talk about one of the Royal Courses in particular. I want to get your thoughts on this as well, but um, I wanted to talk about uh, recent happenings at Royal Liverpool. Shaq, you just came back from Royal Liverpool, isn't you? Of course, were there to watch the Open, which, uh, which Rory won. Give us a thumbnail sketch of, uh, I noticed all your posts on the blog were about what a fabulous job the RNA had done with the tournament, with things like Wi-Fi and the spectator experience. Quick thumbnail sketch of your week or so at Royal Liverpool and some of the things you did around it. Well, I, I took in, of course, everything I could. Uh, you know, I get into the grounds and all that. Uh, the golf course, uh, I didn't really go in with any expectations. It ended up being a bit, um, it's, it, it, it's underwhelming in a lot of ways, but I, I'm told by people who are there, part of that is the tournament infrastructure kind of takes away a certain uh, vibe you get of the property, that there's a, there's a great feel there without all of the uh, grandstands and all that. You'd not been before, obviously. Uh, but I... I no, I had not been there, and uh, so it's it's uh, it's it's strange. It's not particularly compelling to walk around and, and watch, and yet historically it did what it's always done, which is produce um, interesting golf, and it it created just enough uh, difficulty and 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 added just enough fun to make the whole thing interesting and make the guys earn their uh, earn their money. But um, it's it's uh, not a place that overwhelms you it was very narrow and of course the internal ob was the uh, out of bounds was one of the things that that really bothered me it just it just doesn't uh, work for me and and I'm, I'm not a fan of it when it's not a natural boundary uh, but you know it's another one of those things they do because the golf ball uh, goes too far and so um, it it helps maintain some challenge i guess the one positive is that it allows them to keep all the par fives playing as par fives and so we had four par fives which 
if you listen to the player comments, I thought made for a more positive week because you, you hear them saying, well, you know, you get off to a bad start, you know you have those par fives waiting. And um, it just it just lent a certain air to the golf and the, the vibe with the players that, that made it a course where they loved the ebb and flow of it uh, because of that. And I, I think that's uh, one of the things that is lost whenever they change the par to mm. 70 at these golf courses and take away a couple of par fives. It's crazy, isn't it, Clates? As golfers, we're a bit nuts. For some reason, if you take the same golf hole, same length, change nothing about it, call it a par four <laughs> one day and a par five the next day, it changes the way people are yeah. think about the, what's going on with that even the top players in the world fall for this trick yeah it's amazing I mean two of the probably the two hardest par fours in Australia are the 8th at Bumbugle and the, the 13th hole at St Andrews Beach both Tom Doak courses and I mean people criticise them forever because they're 460 metre almost par fours oh they're ridiculous holes but if they were par fives they'd be perfectly <laughs> they'd be too short yeah yeah no, it's just yeah it is Complete madness. It's bizarre. Yeah. It's, Scott, did... I mean, Jeff, don't you think that first, well, or the third hole in the tournament, the first at Hoylake would be a, be a disastrous hole if it wasn't that internal out of bounds, wouldn't it? Surely everyone would just drive it down the practice floor and pitch it on the green. Yeah, yeah, yeah I guess it does. Uh, although that said, with the tournament's infrastructure there, uh, it, it still sort of plays as a dog leg, so I, I don't know. It's uh, But I would imagine without all that, yeah, it would be... It would be pretty silly. Although a little shot over the uh, the cop mound or whatever you want to call it with the LB, it would be kind of a tricky little shot. But no, it wouldn't have the danger that uh, that it has, obviously, with the out of bounds. And how, how far right of the green is the OB? It's only a couple of feet off the green. Oh, it's right it? next to it. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. it's quite bizarre. Yeah, you'd be familiar with Royal Liverpool, I'm sure. Scott would have spent some time there whilst researching the book, and they would have been looking forward to the Open at the time. What's the Royal Club take on when the Open comes to town? I imagine it's a big deal for any clubs. And some of your thoughts on the course as a course designer. Yeah, I was, there, I was there last week with Jeff, actually. So I, I was there for the practice day and, and the first round of the competition. It's an interesting course. It, it became 18 holes in 1871, and uh, Harry Colt, again, was connected with it. It's a triangular piece of property. They kind of start in one corner and work their way down to the longest corner and then back up around the perimeter. You know, they have the strongest dune formations are along um, the, the the longest edge of the triangle well, actually, it's, it's not quite the longest edge. It's a funny triangle, but it's the, along the Irish Sea, um, or um, I guess it's the River Dee. It, 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 has, it shares these two boundaries of water, so the wind moves its way around, and the River Dee pushes up along holes which are 9, 10, 11, 12, it's sort of four holes, and they're generally um, certainly 10, 11, 12, uh, uh, or 10 and 12, which are the two dogleg lefts, 11 to par 3. Um, the, those are the more interesting holes, and I, I would reflect what Jeff said that um, it's underwhelming in many ways once you get into the flatter holes. There's a lot of interest around the greens, and the runoffs are really good. Um, I don't see it particularly as a driving course. So obviously, you've got to drive it in the fairways to have shots in, and they grow the rough up um, for for the Open Championship. But I've always felt that the interest which is is there is predominantly around the greens because of the. Uh, the angles of the greens and the runoffs, um, the deep bunkers and the pop bunkers are like all these links golf courses, penalising. You could get lucky and be in a decent location, and it's certainly prepared. I thought the bunkers beautifully for the Open Championship, where generally the ball would run back into a position where golfers had a swing. 
Um, they they do renumber the golf course for the Open Championship. What what are holes 17 and 18 normally? Are uh, uh, one and two for the Open Championship. Um, so that would have a different experience for those who only know the golf course for its traditional numbering. Um, but the pros only come and they only play it for their week and, and that works well for them. So whereas a normal golfer would come in and, um, and the first hole would have this internal out-of-bounds on the right-hand side, for the professionals, that's actually hole three. So they're, um, they're a little bit more warmed up because not only have they spent... 45 minutes of the practice rounds, they've had a couple of holes, whereas the average guy is just jumping out of his car, throwing on the shoes, and uh, your first shot has you out of bounds. So it can be a difficult start, as you as you can imagine, for the uh, for the club golfer. But it's a historic club. Uh, it's a it's produced a host of great champions. It's had a number of uh, very good amateur golfers historically. John Ball Jr. Uh, and Harold Hinton was a member there as well. So it's uh, it's a landmark course in the UK and and deserving its, of its spot on the Open Rotor. What, what's your take on the internal out of bounds? And I'll get this from from Clates as well. I know that you're not a fan, Shaq, and a lot of people on your site aren't a fan of internal OB. It's there all the time, as I understand it, Scott. The um, I seem to recall it being there when I played there back in 1997. The internal OB is an integral part of the golf course. It's always been thus. What's your take on internal OB? Some people just can't cop it as an idea. What do you what do you think? Uh, you know, we as, a, as I put a different hat on and move away from it as a historian. Uh, my preference is to not have internal out of bounds. If there's a way that features and courses can be designed that uh, property, which is uh, you know, an area of land, a plot, a parcel, which is owned by uh, the club, um, sh- should ideally not be an out of bounds feature. You know, out of bounds is normally because it's off the property boundary. Uh, I understand why this practice area is out of bounds, um, but certainly um, I would be having a preference for uh, it not to be, if possible. Though I, I'm not sure it is. Uh, I'm not sure it is not possible, if that makes sense. In this case, yeah, Clates, you are you an anti-internal OB man? It does seem an unusual feature most when you usually, and normally it's to stop people driving balls down a, an opposing fairway. So that tends to be when you get internal OB most times on courses. You know, I guess no one likes it much, but I mean, there are times when you kind of need it, really. I mean, there was that seventh hole, Scott, which like is the ninth in the tournament, the, the par three. There used to be when we first played there, it was out of bounds to the right of the green, I think. The, that, that little ridge to the right of the green, it was out of bounds on the other side of it, or the, or the left of the green. I can't remember, but I don't think that's there anymore. That was a crazy out of bounds there. Yep, I don't recall that one, Clates, but I would agree with you. That would be crazy. Mm. Yeah, that was we played there in 1990 in a tournament. There was a little ridge that was out of bounds, which seemed completely bizarre in our place. But what was you know. your take on the course? Thing? Well, you played. I didn't realize you played it under tournament conditions. But are you a fan of Royal Liverpool or Hoylake? Well, yeah, I love playing. I thought it was a tremendous course, and, and, and I went to the Open, the last Open, the 2006 Open, so which was a great Open because Tiger played so well. But yeah, I thought it was a tremendous. I mean, all those Open courses are obviously tremendous courses. Yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was clever and fun and um, interesting and. All those things, but um, Jeff, did you watch Tiger play at all last week, week before? Uh, very little. I watched some, but uh, not not a. Uh, I, I ended up with uh, Mickelson and McElroy and some others more. And but he's he's lost. He's he got worse every day, and uh, well, it's quite exciting uh, after the first round, wasn't it? It's hard to understand. Yeah, well, it was. Uh, it was. It was. There was a sense that he was going to play decently. Mm. And then just every day it got worse and worse. 
Pierce, and uh, uh, and he kept uh, commenting that things were, uh, you know, he was uh, getting better and better. So uh, it's uh, you just get the the vibe that the the energy is uh, and and the excitement to play is not there uh, like it used to be, which. Again, is not uh, a, a necessarily a bad thing because he brought a certain energy to his play that, that we haven't seen in uh, modern times, and so uh, it's inevitable probably that 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 can only go so long. And of course, stepping into his shoes, Shaq is uh, the young man who won at Rory. He's extraordinary to watch when he's on, isn't he? He is as good as anybody has ever been at this game. He did some amazing things over the course of that week. I think the most amazing thing is that he. Yeah, we we laud Mickelson uh, for his transformation, and and uh, it took him a while. McElroy goes plays the Scottish Open to be like Phil, and just tells himself he has to like this kind of golf. He has to embrace it, <laughs> and he does it, and he goes and he wins. It's just, uh, uh, it's it to me, it's, it speaks to his talent that he was able to turn it around from just a year ago. And yeah, people will say that this course wasn't as firm and fast. As a normal open it, it, with the rain, and but it, it's not just that he didn't like firm and fast or wind. He doesn't even like golf courses uh, that are that are essentially links that aren't defined. Uh, he likes tree line defined golf. So everything that he doesn't like about golf is in links golf, and yet he he managed to uh, just convince himself that he had to to like it for a couple weeks a year. I think that was how he put it, and uh, he did, and it was uh, stunning. He, he keeps doing this, Shaq. Uh, his quotes from 2011 when he basically said he doesn't like Lynx golf, he's not going to change his game for one week a year, you know, he essentially don't worry. He'd rather play golf when it's 80 degrees and sunny in Florida than, than Lynx golf. Yeah. It, all those comments should come back to bite him on the bum every year when the Open comes around, and they would have, except that, of course, this this year he goes out and wins the thing in, uh, you know, in dominating fashion, and so those things get forgotten. He's quite amazing at righting wrongs, McElroy, isn't he, away from the course? Well, and he has help from the press. Uh, I mean, I'm, I I still have ringing in my ears from the the uh, the ovation that erupted in the press room when he hold the final putt to to win the Open. I mean, it is uh, it's nauseating how uh, how in love they are with him. So he doesn't get a lot of questions really on this topic, uh, questioning him in a in, in a really tough way. And uh, and I, again, it's golf. I don't think he should be grilled, but it is rather uh, entertaining to to see uh, um, what a what a group of uh, uh, homers he has on his side down there or, or over there. Yeah, it's uh, he's very likable, isn't he, Clates? Which I suppose partly explains that. And I guess in a lot of ways, the golf press, the golf media are looking for the next Tiger Woods. It's been a long time since many of us can remember life before Tiger Woods. As far as the golf media goes, and and Rory is certainly he's got the game, doesn't he, Clay? He did some remarkable things, I thought, uh, during the course of the tournament last week. Those two eagles to finish on Saturday was extraordinary stuff. Yeah, beautiful stuff to that. I didn't hold it. Yeah, the, the, the interesting thing, Rory Tiger was Tiger slapped it out of bounds on that seventeenth hole with a dreadful drive, and then Rory and the group behind came up and whacked up about forty yards off the green, which was kind of a changing of the guard moment, perhaps. <laughs> What Tiger used to do? Yeah, yeah. If Tiger had bothered to look back, he would have been pretty depressed at the thought of the fact. I mean, to me, he's still the most fascinating guy in the game. Whether he gets it back, I mean, it's hard for me to believe that he's not going to go and play some more great golf. But you know, it's a whether he picks him for the Ryder Cups. Another interesting question to, to play. And 
Yeah, it's, it, it, it's almost as interesting to see how Tiger handles this <laughs> than the earlier part of his career, really. Oh, because, just, yeah, you, you're right, aren't you? It, it is almost more interesting to see how somebody who's been to such great heights deals with not seemingly not being able to get back there. He really is struggling. Yeah, because Nicholas kept playing well. Nicholas played well for, you know, well into his 40s. Obviously, he won the Masters in his mid-40s. So it's, how, how Tiger handles the next six years is going to be really interesting watching, really. We won't talk about him too much, but Jack, he looks on TV, he looks huge in the upper body. I mean, it looks like he spent all his time away from the game this year just pumping iron. That's how it seems. That's how he looks on TV. He's, he's developed this shape, which is more bodybuilder than golfer. Is that Does that bear out in, in real life? Uh, he's still pretty big, but he definitely, post-back surgery, has compared to where he was uh, at the beginning of the year when he came to Torrey Pines, uh, it's not even close. He's he's definitely shed uh, some some weight. And uh, Butch Harmon was telling some people that that he he noticed that, but he, he hasn't added flexibility back. He, his swing's kind of short, and he looks tight. And uh, mm. but I I thought yeah, he still looks big. But again, Rory's added muscle, yeah. and has his chest has gotten bigger. But he, you still just you don't look at him and go oh boy he's gonna he's 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 uh, overly pumped up, whereas Tiger, you kind of look at, and especially as 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 you watch him play, and you start to wonder um, how, how this has served him well. But I, I did, I was encouraged that I felt like compared to uh, earlier in the year, he's he's uh, he's been forced to throttle back. Yeah, well, they're all amazing athletes these days, aren't they? I mean, Adam Scott, the same. You look at him, and he's an extraordinarily strong, athletic sort of bloke. Dustin Johnson, I mean, there's just. There's a production line of them, isn't there, Shaq? These guys who are super yeah. fit and could play other sports pretty comfortably. Aside from Rory's win, or maybe there was something about Rory's win, what was the sort of most interesting thing to you all week, Shaq? I mean, generally, I think we look at it and think the course is going to be the most interesting player of the week. What stood out from the week for you of the Open? That nothing really stood out. Uh, other than, the, I, I mean, it was just a nice, normal tournament week. Uh and and I guess maybe maybe we've had so many lately where there there are extremes. Either it's extremely boring, or there's extreme controversy that takes away from the the golf. This was just kind of a nice uh, normal week. It was a, a a good solid golf course, good tests, good leaderboard. Um, Ricky Fowler's been playing well, and you could see that kind of coming at the Scottish Open that he was going to do that. And um, I, I I found it refreshing that we we just had a a standard week of uh, of a major, and of course, a lot of people have gotten spoiled. Maybe in in the last fifteen years that we we didn't have more antics. Yeah, indeed. Just uh, to wrap up the open on some of the other players, Clates. I watched Sergio with great interest in the last round, and sixty six was a, a fabulous score. But it seemed to me that uh, it came to the fifteenth hole, and you know, he, he started the day seven behind, stood on the eleventh tee two behind, and still couldn't sort of get closer or get the job done. Did you take anything from? Watching Garcia on the Sunday, of course, famously said at the Masters a couple of years ago to some Spanish writers, oh, well, that's it. I'm not good enough. I've just got to play for second at the majors because I'm not good enough. What's your take on such a such a pure ball striker. He hits such magnificent shots. Yeah, it's hard. It'd be hard, it would be hard to believe he's not going to win one at some point. I mean, he's been there a lot. He's played well. He's, he's still young, relatively. He's got a terrific swing. He's powerful. He's, yeah, I mean, he's, you know, he left it in the bunker there at 15 and, Finished up making a good up and down to make a bogey, but that was really the last chance he had. That was the end of it, wasn't it? And yeah. that almost seemed telling, didn't it? It was like, of all the things to do, to miss the shortest par three for a start and then to leave it in the sand, it almost encapsulates Garcia in a way, doesn't it? Yeah. Just, but, 
you know, he's a terrific player who, again, it would be hard to imagine him not winning a major, but it would be it was hard to imagine Colin Montgomery not winning one either. So he's got two now. Monty does have two. Monty, <laughs> Monty, the, the talk of Monty perhaps making the Ryder Cup team got slapped on the head last week when Langham beat him. Shot. I think Bernard might be going in ahead of me if he's not. <laughs> yeah. Yes, uh, indeed. Scott, I want to come back to grilling you. That was uh, that was the opener. I think you're quite right, Jeff. It was really quite standard, wasn't it? Sort of everything we expected to happen happened, and it was uh, and it was nice to sort of see it unfold. But Scott, in the intro I mentioned, I had you on the show a couple of years ago, and I think Jeff might have been with us when you released your book about uh, all the changes at St Andrews over time. And I can recall being quite taken aback that at that time you were suggesting that the old course should be changed again for the modern game. Am I imagining that? Did I dream that that happened? Or did you really sort of suggest that? And given that the old course has now changed, what's your take on what they have done? I think in the book I I try to, and maybe I I took a liberty that I maybe shouldn't have taken in hindsight, but I was young and silly then. Um, and I, I tried to look <laughs> forward and think about what may or may not happen. And I think I proposed uh, that there was maybe an opportunity to add some bunkers and more specifically that there uh, had been um, an area on the 11th green, which is the famous par 3 high hole, um, which was um, unready for a pin position in modern tournament conditions. And I did a survey of the green suggesting that um, as it currently was at that point, the left side was between 4 and 6%. And with greens running uh, anything over 10, really 11 and 12, which is what they traditionally have been in the Open Championship, that that was too steep um, and that they could either slow the green down to 7 or 6 or 7 or 8 to try and gain that uh, pin position or um, potentially uh, make an adjustment. Um, It looks like they have obviously proceeded to go ahead and and change the, the slopes on that green. I didn't expect that. Um, to, to happen, uh, I was more of the more of the uh, side that may have thought that they would entertain the concept of changing some green speeds, which historically um, has always been part of the game. I've always felt, um, having trained under Peter Thompson in Melbourne a number of years ago now, in fact a different century from that we're in, um, that uh, I have recalled conversations with Peter saying and, and him telling me that the reason they had a, a practice round was to go and learn the speeds of the different greens and um, and that uh, it didn't matter what colour greens were. It, it, all that mattered was that, that they were smooth and um, ultimately, um, you know, that the, the art of putting would produce the, the the champion of the day. And I think that's always stuck with me. Um, so I, I like that. There's a romance that goes along with this concept of having slightly different green speeds, not radically different green speeds, but slightly different, um, rather than this drive towards a uniformity of uh, 11, 11 and a half, 12, whatever it may be that uh, the taste of the day. Um, but that's a, that's a different view than a number of people in the professional game have, uh, and um, and I'd be interested to hear what Clayt's view is on green speeds. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's been interesting watch the old course continue to evolve, and and there have been some changes. Uh, uh, so I see just before you called me up that I was fortunate enough to play uh, the old course on uh, on Saturday. It's uh, a couple of days ago now. 
and um, the, the, there was in a competition for a local golf club, and uh, we were playing off back tees, and and the, and the flags were in uh, fairly competitive places. But everybody in my group um, all remarked that we are looking forward to the day when they put that flag in that back left position on 11, because they've really been saving that position for the for the turf which they laid a little over a year ago. To um, I mean, it's great, and if we walk on it, and we putt on it because you have to exit the green in that place, and it certainly looks ready for a hole position. They put one or two, but they're it's it's they're not using it very often. Um, but I'm I'll be fascinated. I think they uh, they it was uh, Martin Hawtrey who did the work, uh, and um, the green looks great. Uh, they lowered that back corner. Uh, around about 30 centimetres, a little over a foot, but you uh, absolutely could not tell. And they've got two fantastic little pin positions that run close to the very famous Phil Bunker, uh, the bunker which um, trapped Bobby Jones all those years ago, 1921, I think was the year that he got stuck in there. So it's been interesting to watch and, um, you know, who knows, maybe we'll, at some point we'll, uh, we'll update the book on the old course. You would have been familiar, obviously, with the outcry that happened you know, when the bulldozers sort of rolled out onto uh, onto St Andrews and we were all a bit surprised about it. And we on the show were pretty critical of that as an idea as well. Were you uh, were you nervous about what they were going to do when you sort of first saw the story and have you now, having seen it, are happy enough with what they've done? That was always going to be the, the test, I suppose, once they'd finished doing what they'd, what they'd done. What was your take before and then after? Did it change, I guess is what I'm asking I mean, I'm a member of a local golf club, and certainly um, they had the RNA uh, together with the Lynx Trust had canvassed uh, the local golf clubs, not the members particularly, but the, the clubs themselves. And there was pretty broad support within the town. I think it became uh, it was a shock for a lot of people. Um, my view as a historian was that the, the course had always changed, and um, it's difficult to wrap something in plastic and say, you know, when's the right time to stop. Um, for me, the great virtue of the old course was the fact that it's remained uh, a test for the best golfers in the world since it first opened an Open Championship in the uh, in the uh, late 1800s, um, and it's still a great test for golf today. Though golf today is, as you can imagine, quite different than it was uh, 150 years ago. Um, so, um, I, uh, as a golf course architect looked at it and tried to figure out what were the merits of the course itself. And I have felt for a number of years that um, it's the central hazards that really define the test. Um, The bunkers that were added, say, along the second hole, along the outside, the right side of the second hole, when they decided that the the, um, right-hand course was the course that they were going to make the championship course, um, were, were an addition. So almost, almost any of those bunkers for me were take them or leave them. Um, the ones that became the most important ones were ones starting, I guess, the hole, hole two, which is Cheap's Bunker, and then running um, those very famous bunkers that all have names that run down the middle of the course from Hell to Shell to um, even Bose's Bunker on the ninth hole, as much as the ninth hole probably has less interest than other holes. Um, it's the central hazards that, that make those um, those holes so very interesting to me. So I, I kind of stepped back and was keen to see uh, what they were going to do. I, I think the two new bunkers that they've added, um, they have removed four as well on the second hole, really add to the, um, the, the second hole. I think they've 
been uh, very good. There's been this um, this ground that they um, that they call broken ground added in a couple of areas, maybe most most notably to the right of four and to the right of six, um, which has uh, which has uh, been turfed and and grown in very well. It uh, probably has slightly more humps and bumps than I would have thought, but it's probably a step in the right direction from the flatland, which I would say almost certainly had been modified at some point anyway as the T's started moving back and right. Um, so you can you can separate it out into different areas. Um, broadly speaking, I think the as I, as I said earlier, I think the 11, 11th green has been a success, and um, and in general that the the changes have been a success. Clace, you're a, a fan and familiar with the old course. You played it many times, and I know it's sort of one of the the courses you look to when you think about golf course design and what makes it interesting and all that. What would you like to ask Scott, given that he's played it and a fellow course designer? Uh, my knee-jerk reaction was always to the St Andrews changes that, wow, how could you do that? And I think most people were the same, and I'd probably put you in that category. Now that it has been done, you've heard from Scott there, what would you perhaps like to ask him or your thoughts on on the changing of the old course? It's pretty controversial stuff, obviously. Well, I suppose the most controversial, well, aside from 11, was changing the, the, the road hole bunker and the green around that. How, how did that turn out, Scott, did you think? The road hole bunker... Um... Uh, you know, funnily enough, I've got some. When I was doing the book, I collected a whole lot of photos, and I've got some, <laughs> there's even one in the book. Funnily enough, of when it was very, really shallow, and I think they've um, uh, done a good job. I think it, it collects a few new balls, and um, uh, you know, you tend to say 99 out of 100 people wouldn't notice the difference. So I suspect it's probably like 999 out of a thousand, yeah. and it's very difficult because every two years, and in fact, in that case, the Roadhole Bunker case. They um, re-revet uh, the bunker every year. So, in talking with the head greenkeeper, both of the course and and the the chap in charge of all the courses, um, they always peel away the turf, and there's always a change every single year. So, the only real change in this case was those few yards in front of the of the golf course. I, I have to say. Um, to be fair about it, that my reservation about the proposed change to that at the time was not the bunker itself, but it was looked like it was going to encroach on a really interesting corner of the green, a slightly raised, raised corner, which was two or three feet. Um, and I was, I've always liked that corner. It's always, for me, acted to shunt balls into the bunker, and I was wondering how they were going to treat that corner. Um, but they did a nice job, and it's um, uh, certainly having now seen it and played it a number of go- num- number of times, um, the the hole works really well. Um, there were there was another proposed change which I was uncomfortable with, um, which was to do with the fourth hole, and they have this these shoulders that they were looking at shaving, and um, and and a lot of that was to do not with the RNA but with the links, just saying um, those. acute spur formation. Yeah, that's it. And I've never figured out what that, well, I know exactly what it is, but the terminology, and once I asked a few more questions about what that was and why they were doing it, it seemed that that was to do with just the difficulty in maintaining it. And I had to say that at the time that um, if any <laughs> if any place has the money to hire a couple of extra blokes to mow the grass, if it needs to be with a hand mower or a fly mower or scissors, it's the Lynx Trust. So there were certainly some of the proposals that I wasn't comfortable with, but the bigger things that they got on with and they did, they've done a nice job. 
Shaq, what's what's your there? You, you, I think you you were part of the the group of us that thought it was just a horrifying sight to see pictures of you know earth moving machines out on the old course. Scott sort of saying, and Scott positive. I'm pretty sure you're on that show, and we talked to him, and I was quite taken aback at the time, saying that you know the old course has always changed. There's no reason why we couldn't keep changing it or necessarily shouldn't keep changing it. Not to verbal you there, Scott, but I think it was sort of along those lines, uh, as you said. What's what having heard what Scott's saying now. Um, are we a bit calmer about what's happened at the old course? Did we have a tabloid reaction at first, or are you still uncomfortable at the notion of the old course being fiddled with? Uh, I'm still uncomfortable with the idea of uh, Peter Dawson and Martin Hotry uh, playing architect on the old course. It's uh, uh, it's 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 having Stephen King uh, rewrite the Bible to me. It's just <laughs> it just doesn't. Uh, it just doesn't work for me uh, on on so many levels, and um, so I, I I can't get past that point, and uh, I never will. Yeah. So I assume you you can sort of see where people are coming from, Scott. With that, it sounds to me like you've sort of looked at it. You you seem pretty calm and sort of uh, unemotional about this sort of stuff. You look at it beforehand, you look at it afterwards, and you say it hasn't been too bad. But I guess you understand why people around the world react. To a photo of a, an Earth-moving machine on the seventeenth at St Andrews, pretty, pretty stark stuff, isn't it? Oh, look, look, you know, Jeff and Clay's I consider friends, and I value their opinions uh, very much. They're both in the, in the industry, worked really hard, studied it, understand it, and uh, and I share most of many of their opinions. I think where I came from on this one, having. Uh, you know, I, I spent a, a year caddying in, on the old course and did over 300 rounds. I've seen every corner of that property. I've lived in the town for six years. I'm a member of a local club. We work, I work for American company that built two courses in there. I, I understand the politics of the area. And I think what the book did for me on, on the old course was um, I came to understand that the course had changed quite radically. And I, um, in order to to take on... The, the notion that that we can't change it, I had to get to a position where I had to say that it's perfect. And, um, you know, golf courses are growing, they're always changing, the wind is blowing. And you know what, I wasn't sure it was. And, and who am I to say that now's the time to stop? Because effectively that's what you're saying. Mm. Um, so uh, I think, you know, there is a, this is a golf course which the world watches. And they, the RNA and the Lynx Trust, uh, are under a, a higher burden of proof uh, to make sure that whatever changes they do do are the right ones. And and I think that comes with a lot of pressure. And I tend to think that makes you do the right thing and not the wrong thing. Now we can all be really subjective about whether we like the changes. And uh, and I'm not saying whether I necessarily well I have. I guess I said that some of them I think have done a nice job on. Um, but um, we can take a different position on um, whether it was the right thing to do or not, and um, and everybody has their opinion on that, and, and I'm happy to, happy to have mine as well. One of the criticisms, of course, Scott, about changing the old course is that it's predominantly done because the Open goes there every five years, and it's to combat the professional game, which has got out of hand in other areas, i.e. the ball, which is the simple argument, and because the RNA and the USGA don't want to do anything about that because they're afraid of legal action, then they start tinkering with the great golf courses. What's your take on that as a uh, for the everyday player? Did the old course need to change perhaps? Or is this driven by the fear that somebody's going to shoot 59 around the old course in an open? 
Well, look, you know, golf's the game where the lowest score wins. It, I mean, I, I agree with what I think I heard Clayt say earlier, that, you know, par is a hypothetical number. It doesn't really matter what it is. Um, the guy who goes around the lowest is is going to win, and whether that means they go around an average 58 or 59 or 68 or 72, it, it, it's really immaterial. I, I'm, a, I'm a guy who kind of likes the tees going up um, sometimes, so you can take on these, uh, on these challenges. And yet when you look at the way the scoring system and, and par and handicapping works in the UK, uh, many, in many ways, and this is not so much for the Open Championship, but on a, on a club level, the, the clubs don't have the opportunity to push tees forward because they can't move more than 20 metres from where it's been measured from. And, and you know, I think that's unfortunate. I'd love to see tees move up and back and, um, and let the best golfer win, whatever the score may be. What are some of the fun things that could be done with the old course that we're never going to do? We're not great at trying new things in golf, are we? I mean, we're going to see 72 holes of stroke play at the Olympics, which I know Jeff is not a fan of. I'm not a fan of the idea. There's probably more interesting ways to play golf. What, what opportunities do we miss by being sort of stuck to this notion? What could we do with the old goals? Where could we move tees and do things that would make it a far more interesting game to watch, even at the Open? Uh, well, I'm not sure. I think that it's not interesting as it is. Oh, no, um, sorry, I'm not saying not... that it's not, but... You mentioned right. tees up, and we've seen this in particularly the US Open under Mike Davis recently, the, the pre- being prepared to do things that were considered perhaps radical 10 years ago, move tees up, make a drivable par four, make it 500 yards one day and you know 400 or 380 yards the next day. Are there opportunities for those sorts of things at the Open and more generally in golf? As a designer, do you see things? Is the premise of that question based on the old course or, or more broadly? Let's start with the old course, and then you can give us your thoughts more broadly, perhaps. Yeah, the, and, and that's where you've got to guess. Uh, come back to the fact that the old course is the old course, and there, there really is uh, so many things you can do. Uh, it was a really interesting step they made in uh, to the preparation for the 2010 Open Championship, where they went outside what many people conceive to be the boundaries of a golf course um, to, to to add new tees. Uh, and um, yeah, they're still in their own property boundaries, obviously. Um, and I'm not one for links. I do think that uh, the game is more interesting when there's a greater number of people that compete on skill level, and while generating clubhead speed is a skill, um, there's other facets of the game that, which are, which are um, like the art of putting that we were talking about earlier. Uh, which are equally as interesting. So I like it. I like it when it's close, but I also like what we just saw at, the, at Liverpool. I like the fact that there have been a bit of a changing of the guard. We saw Ernie Els, who only a couple of years ago, two years ago, at Lytham Sedans won the Open Championship, and we've seen Tiger Woods sort of start to bow out. Guys like Lee Westwood, who was in the final group at Muirfield, it looked like they've probably seen their their days in the greenest field behind them. Um, and we've got the young guys coming through. So that's exciting. That's what the kids and the, the future of the game need to see. They, you know, we're, we're re- I think we're in a really fortunate time. Adam Scott's just a fantastic golfer. He's great for the kids. He looks good on TV. He's a really, uh, I don't know him personally. Clates, I'm sure, does know him. Uh, he just looks like a super approachable, low-key guy who happens to be a fantastic golfer. Um, and I, I think if I was looking at something, it wouldn't necessarily be at how we do the golf courses, but making these kids just accessible to the next generation so we can inspire more golfers to come to the game. Clay Scott, Adam is irritatingly perfect, isn't he? <laughs> well, 
as I said, I haven't met, met him, but he looks like a nice guy. He is irritatingly perfect, isn't he, Clay? Yes. Yeah, he's a he's a good guy. Very, yeah, you couldn't get a better ambassador for golf. Certainly in Australia. I mean, we've spoken about it before, but he was tremendous when he came down last year as the Masters champion. He did everything with the correct amount of grace and patience. and Probably to his own detriment, Clates, in the end. Well, Do you think? A lot of energy taken with what he did at the back end of last year down here, I would have thought. He looked tired in the last round of the Open, I thought, which, of course, was the one that yeah, got away. Yeah, it was a long month for him, and he did screw up the end of the Australian Open there a little when Rory buried the last and he bogeyed it to lose by one. But, yeah, he was, aside from that, it was. I mean, he won two of the three tournaments, so he hardly had a bad time down here. Oh, you know, I wasn't suggesting it was a bad time. He's not quite irritatingly perfect. If he'd won the Open, he would have been completely irritatingly perfect. Uh, I guess, at the back end of last year. What's your take on some of what Scott's saying there, Clades? Do you agree, disagree? It's almost more interesting when people disagree. I'm not sure I agree with everything he says, but what's your take on some of the points he's made there about the old course and the game in general? Well, I think the green speed thing's interesting. I know I've spoken to Peter Thompson about it, and his home club, Victoria, have a couple of really steep greens. The sixth green is a really steep green that I spoke, remember speaking to Richard Forsyth about, who's the superintendent at Royal Melbourne, about different green speeds and he looked at me like I was you know, an idiot like what do you mean you have different green speeds but Thompson's always advocated that and, and they keep talking about having to rebuild the sixth green of Victoria because it's too steep well it's been fine for 100 years just grow the grass a bit longer so, so I really you know I really agree with Thompson's point that you know if the green's too steep then just make it a little slower are we becoming more homogenised with the way we expect golf to be, do you think, Clades? The expectation, not just the present, but people are now starting to expect a homogenised experience no matter where they go. Well, golf pros especially, but members now more and more, it's got to be consistent and it's got to be fair, it's, you know, which leads to predictability. So that was never what the game was about, was being fair and being consistent. But, but if you ask the average member... Certainly, if you talk about bunkers, they were all yeah. You know, they have to be consistent, which is well, they have to be inconsistent really to be any good or interesting. So, so the game is certainly swerving away from what what what, what swerved violently towards making it fair and predictable. And yeah, yeah. The last thing the old course is is fair and predictable. That's fair, why that's the great right. golf is it's you know it's unfair and unpredictable. And you know it's how you manage the unfairness and the unpredictability that, that's the great test of it, really. And those shades of grey that you often talk about in relation to the old course. One of your great quotes at the top of your site in the last week, Shaq, and I love those each day, and I see them requoted all around the place. You do a fabulous job with those. Was the Alistair McKenzie quote, and I'm paraphrasing, which basically says people get bored with the game without knowing why. And the reason is because the courses are dull. This predictability yeah. and fairness that Clates is talking about, that sort of institutes that people don't realise why, but the game gets kind of boring, doesn't it, when it's all fair and flat and greens are all exactly the same speed. It's not what it's supposed to be, is it? Of course it does. And it, and it also gets easier for a good golfer. I think Clates can speak to this. Uh, when when Scott was Describing a lot of the things that have gone on at the old course, I'm always I've been mystified from the beginning with the changes that uh, so many of these are maintenance driven and um, you know just changing just having a different mower for the for the 11th and seventh green um, that allowed them to keep the contours um, probably wouldn't affect us, but for a good player that gets in their head and it's not an ideal situation, but I think it's better than changing the green. The point is a lot of these these things that were done to 
to, to to deal with maintenance will just kind of it just it just dulls everything, levels thing, and and the the modern professional loves that. It's just less work for them. Um, so I, I've just been amazed with all the things in maintenance uh, that and that at the old course that uh, all the things they can do now. That that was what drove so many filling in holes and on the seventh fairway and that 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 sunken strange thing that had been there forever. Uh, so, uh, but yes, it's um, it is a, it does make things dull and uh, you know just seeing some of the links that I saw over there and then seeing Hoylake and all the things that have been done to make it more fair and, and more of a modern test, uh, it, 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 it makes you scratch your head. You've just set up episode 44, I think, Check your odyssey across <laughs> the UK. It's, uh, I was, yeah. Well, no, seriously, I'd, I'd like because it's Because, Scott, golf is two different games. Professional golf and what we play, they really aren't related, are they? By the, people, the way people experience them and what they're experiencing, they're two completely different things. I like, what, I like what Jeff was saying, and this whole concept of fairness has um, bothered me as well that it's never been a fair game. It's never meant to be a fair game. It's meant to be a fast game. It's meant to be a fun game, but it was never meant to be a fair game. So trying to make it fair seems to me to move away from what's what's one of the great things about the game. If you want fairness, go and play snooker. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you, you know, it's that type of thing. And, and it's sort of you know, so occasionally you get a chance to watch a bit of golf on TV, and, um, and I saw a little bit of uh, golf at Royal Montreal. Last weekend, there was a one of the commentators was talking about how the golfer would rather have been. I think it was on the right side of the of the 18th hole, as par four turns left, and they were sort of driving it out, and it just trickled into the bunker. And the commentator was saying, "Oh, well, that's much better. I'd much rather be in the bunker." And how the professionals aim for the bunkers because they can get a clean lie and hit it out. And uh, you know, it just made me think about hazards, hazards in general. That um, while obviously rough and semi-rough is a hazard, um, it still boggling in many ways that uh, that a bunker is a preferred hazard than, than other lives. I, I know why that is, but I'd be interested for um, for Clates to speak to that. Well, before you do, Clates, do you recall a couple of years ago at the memorial when Jack introduced the wide-tined rakes? Oh, yeah. And the howls of protest that only lasted one year, if I recall. Yeah, the PGA Tour, we're never going to put up with that. <laughs> That's unfair. I've hit it into a bunker. Why shouldn't I have a, a – what's your take now? I mean, Thompson's always been big on, hasn't he? Don't rake the bunkers. Leave the footprints well, in there. You play those – I mean, Porthcore, where Bernard Langer won last week. I mean, if you drive into those links, those links bunkers there, those pot bunkers, you, you hope you can stand in it, <laughs> swing at it, and go forward. And if you've got those three things in your favour, then that's a bonus. So there were so many times you, you either – can't get both feet in, you can't swing, and you, and you can't go forward. And, um, I mean, the, if you build them now, they'd go completely crazy, but they're such fearsome hazards. I mean, basically, they're water hazards, really, mm. but, but you can play from them. So, yeah, the notion of getting in the bunker, but, well, the great mystery of American golf is why so many bunkers are surrounded by rough. Why are, they, why are all the bunkers in the rough? Mm. The fact, well, just the fascination with long grass in America, in particular, Clades. Yeah. We've sort of yeah. adopted a little bit of it here in parts of Australia, but it's it seemed to be far more of a hazard than uh, used far more as a hazard than what we see elsewhere. It's one of the great things about the Open, isn't it? It's got the short grass around the greens and the options that gives the players, and then the great shots and the ordinary shots that you see as a result of that. That's what makes it interesting. Oh, it, it'll be a, a long time from now before I advocate doing anything other than cutting that grass down around greens. I'm a fan of it. You know, particularly where you get some of the raised greens, people refer to courses like, say, Royal Dornick, 
where uh, the the greens are raised and the ball will roll down and away. And there was a reason that uh, that idea caught on, uh, apart from the fact that the architect moved to America and made Pioneers Number no. 2, Donald Ross obviously we're referring to, and did some great golf courses, is because it was a good idea, you know, and it caught on. And we have, in some ways, in the some architects' desire, I think, to be different, gone back to or gone to ideas which actually are worse than some of the other ones. So I, I'm with Clades as well. I, uh, I see this this cut of rough which can exist between the fairway and the bunker. Sometimes it's semi, sometimes it's longer grass, and um, I can't fathom why you'd do that other than laziness. You know, why would the why would you not want the ball to trickle into the into the hazard? Uh, you know, there's uh, there's uh, there's got to be another way to mow the grass. Yeah, indeed. Scott, la- last question for you, and all this stuff plays into it. We, we often sort of twiddle thumbs about the state of the game and uh, participation waning and all these other issues. And there was another story on Jeff's side during the week. Dick Sporting Goods, big retailer in the States, sacked all of their PGA professionals in one hit during the week last week, which I don't think has been a great PR move. But what role in your mind do the courses and the way we present the courses play in affecting the participation rates of the game? And where have we sort of gone wrong in the last 20 or 30 years, perhaps, that have seen some of this declining and how do we start to get it back? Is it the things we're talking about, those design elements, which when you start to really study golf course after have been popular for so many years because they're fun? Do we need to go back to some of those things? What's your take on that? It's a huge question. You've got 35 seconds to answer it. You know, access to golf is key. So, you know, some countries like China, they have this effectively an upside down pyramid where there's very few easy access golf courses and a lot of high end more traditional places like the UK, New Zealand, Australia particularly, you can go and you can pay your 10 or 20 bucks and you can get on a public course and, and learn the game. So I think that's it's really important that you have golf courses that are accessible. If they happen to be accessible and fun and uh, make people sort of switch on their mind, they move from the mechanical to the actual being engaged with the process, then we've got a greater chance of being of retaining and holding on to these these younger golfers and and letting them move up into the into the chain where they uh, play and they become members and they have kids who take up the game as well. So, access and fun are really key fundamentals. Yeah, yeah. and fun probably is the one that you can really do something about uh, in the golf course design arena, isn't it? You can make golf courses more fun. By the way that you we say to cli- we say to our clients, uh, it's really easy to make a hard golf course, and it's hard to make a fun golf course. Um, you know, you could wake up and roll out of bed in the morning and place hazards all over the show and make a golf course which no one can get around. Um, but how do you build a golf course for an efficient amount of money and make people want to figure out equations? You know, where should I hit my ball? You know, how far should I hit my ball? What's the best angle to approach the green? Should I leave my ball short of the flag or long or beyond? You know, all those questions, everything that makes you think about the golf game in the long term is going to make better golfers and they're going to make golfers stay with the game. And avoid that trap that Mackenzie mentioned where people don't realise why they lose interest in the game, but that's the reason because it's not as interesting as it uh, as it could or should be. Scott, you'll be uh, we're going to let you go now, but you'll be one who'll, who'll take this on board. We had Rand Morissette on the show a couple of weeks ago in the lead up to Pinehurst and Chris Buey and a couple of others talking about Pinehurst and the whole history. And in Chris Buey's book, there was some fabulous um, sort of reviews of holes and this word sporty kept coming up. I think you'll like that and take it for it. I've been using it quite a bit since sporty golf holes. It's a wonderful idea, isn't it? Sporty golf. We don't use it anymore, but it encapsulates everything, doesn't it? 
Well, it's an interesting if you compared, say, Hoylake in 2006 when Tiger won and then uh, a couple of weeks ago. And um, which course was more sporty? Oh, which version of the course was more sporty? Oh, I would six. say it was probably the 2006. I would too. Where the grass had burnt off a little more, balls were running a little further. No, I would say that was. It didn't mean that 2014 Open Championship wasn't brilliant. But, um, yeah, it is a great word because it makes you think about the running of the ball. Yep, absolutely. And you can you – can, that's my gift to you going forward, Scott. You've given everything. That's the tiny thing I can give you. You can have sporty. Going forward, Scott, it's been fantastic to have you on the show. I really enjoyed chatting to you last time. I've enjoyed chatting to you again this time. I'd love to get you back at some time. But uh, congratulations on the book, Royal Clubs. I'm sure Jeff will put a link on his website to where people can get a hold of it. Fascinating stuff. Thanks for taking some time today. Great. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Cody. Yeah, not at all. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, and of course, to the two gentlemen we've just heard from there, Mike Clayton down here in Australia. Great to have you on board, Clayton. Scott was uh, fantastic, as we expected, and uh, good to hear your thoughts on some of what he had to say as well. Yeah, it was terrific. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, Rod? That's all right. And you can thank Jeff as well, as will I, Shaq. Thank you for uh, for taking the time today and looking forward to episode 44 when we'll, uh, we'll go over your trip to the UK and some of the wonderful things you saw there. All right, look forward to it. Yeah, and uh, I look forward to it as well. That wraps it up for today. Episode 44, as I said, won't be too far away. Hopefully you'll be back to join us then. We look forward to your company on State of the Game. State of the Game is a Talk and Golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.